From the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio, this is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us. This podcast will navigate the issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experience as underrepresented professionals in the music industry. So today we have a very special milestone in the podcast. Those of you watching this on our website can <laughs> see Rachel and my smiling faces today for the first time. Wow. We have both been fully vaccinated, so we are thrilled to finally take our masks off Yay. and uh, mark a, an important milestone in the COVID-19 pandemic as we look forward to reopening. And we are joined today by Gita Somayajula who is an arts administrator and singer based in Los Angeles, California. She has sung in prestigious ensembles and festival choruses, including the Youth Chorus of the Oregon Bach Festival, the 2017 ACDA National Collegiate Honor Choir, the USC Concert Choir, and Chamber Singers. As the highlight of her academic work, Somayajula was awarded a Fulbright Scholarship to study the practice, performance, and pedagogy of Indian classical music. She holds dual degrees in business administration and choral music from the University of Southern California. She currently works as a strategist at PricewaterhouseCoopers and serves on the board of Synchrony. Gita Somayajula, it is a pleasure to talk to you today. Welcome to Orchestrating Change. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matthew, and for the lovely introduction. <laughs> well, Keith, it's so wonderful um, to have you today. And um, I've gotten the pleasure of actually knowing you before this, which was super fun to be able to meet you back in California two summers ago now. Um, but for those of you who don't know, for those of us who don't know you, can you just share a little bit about your background in choral music and specifically Indian choral music and what kind of led you into the path that you have today? Totally. Yeah, thanks for asking. So it's kind of a long-winded story. So I'll start here from the top and kind of how I got involved in choral music. So I grew up in a home that was surrounded by music and I actually started on the piano um, when I was five and then started singing in school choir. As I got older and started doing voice lessons in high school and I was in every choir and acapella group that you can imagine. And that kind of led me to pursue my degree in choral music from USC. But in addition to that, my family is from India, first generation American here. So Indian classical music was definitely a prevalent area of inspiration just in my household. My mother plays the veena, which is a South Indian stringed instrument and she does classical dance. My dad is a patron of some Indian music organizations here in Portland, Oregon, where I'm originally from. And so that was also a big influence that kind of determined my career path. So ended up at USC studying choral music. Um, for my family, being immigrants, being well-rounded is also something that's really important. So I added a second degree in business administration 
And as Matthew mentioned, upon graduation, I decided to pursue a Fulbright scholarship to learn more about the music of my heritage, South Indian classical music, um, and to learn how I could incorporate that perspective into the music education and administrative work I do back in the US. So long story short, that's kind of a summary of my career path in education. That's a very great summary. I wish I could be that concise with myself. Absolutely. So tell us really quickly a little bit about Indian classical music. Uh, and if you can, in terms of the way we speak about Western classical music, how, how can you compare and contrast the two just briefly? Oh my gosh, okay, that is a little bit of a, a loaded question. There's a lot to unpack there. But if I had to talk about it at a very high level, compare and contrast, off the top of my head, one, a similarity between Indian classical music, and I studied Carnatic music, so that's South Indian. There's also Hindustani music, which is North Indian. Um, I'd say number one, like often people don't recognize that Indian music is a form of classical music. It's taught in conservatories, people study it professionally, it's performed in concert halls, there's patrons, there's music outreach conducted by big music organizations. So that's definitely like one big similarity in terms of how it's organized and delivered and, and communicated today. Um, another similarity I'd say is just like the pedagogical approach. It takes years of study and practice and dedication. It's not a form of folk music or popular music, which often people have that perception that, oh, if it's world music or from a different country, it might be folk or pop, but it's really a classical concert form of music that requires dedicated study. In terms of differences, probably the biggest one is um, the fact that Indian music is purely a melodic form of music. We do use a drone, so there's like a little bit of chordal or quintal harmony, but there's not um, a tonal harmony kind of structure or like block harmony that influences the music. It's very melodic and also very improvisatory, which is something that takes years to learn. And another fun fact is a lot of Indian music is actually between the notes. So when mm -hmm. we think about Western music, we think of a 12 tone tonal structure. But in Indian music, we actually divide the scale into 22. Um, and because of that, it requires a really strong ear to be able to capture all those microtones and those slides in between the notes when you're singing. So I'd say, at least for me, that was one of the, the hardest things I encountered um, when I was learning the music. And lastly, I would say another similarity is that themes, I'd say, between like classical voice, Western classical voice and Indian music are quite similar. A lot of the music is religious. Um, similar to you know, how Western classical music had its start in the church, is performed in temples and things like that. So thematically, I'd say there's some, diff some similarities as well. Wow. I Absolutely fascinating. I, <laughs> that is so illuminating to me and, and I'm sure our audience as well. Thank you so much. So before you did your Fulbright and you really dove into that more specifically, you studied choral music at USC. Um, and I know we, we talked about this, but you shared that you were one of the few South Asian graduates of that program. Um, how do you think that impacted you and then in turn your music and your approach to everything? Yeah, definitely. So first I'd say definitely like no negativity there at all. Like I had a wonderful experience at USC. You're right. I was, I believe like the only um, South Asian graduate, like out of the classical music program, not just mm -hmm. the choral music program 
um, in my graduating class. I think that's something that's starting to change now, but definitely something that made me feel just a little bit like I had a spotlight on me and you feel mm -hmm. that pressure to succeed, right? When you're representing not just yourself, but all the other South Asian students that have come before you and after you, you kind of feel that pressure to be like a spokesperson. So I would say like, that's one thing, but also another was often being asked to be an advocate for Indian music. If, if it was ever referenced in class mm. or something like that, I hadn't had the education at that point, but was still relied on to be like a spokesperson. So not negative or positive, but definitely I think if you're a minority in a setting that's generally populated by people who don't look like you or have similar experiences, it's something that, you know, someone would experience. But it also inspired me to do my Fulbright. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I'm really grateful for. Yeah. Um, and definitely in choral music, there's a big gap with South Asian representation. Um, but I did take a world music class in my junior year. Indian music was something we touched on for a week or two and really piqued my interest in wanting to learn more. So I'm really grateful for that experience, for setting me on my path um, to get to the Fulbright. Yeah. yeah. And while, I, you know, we have something in common where both of us have degrees in music and also something business related. Yours is business administration, mine is arts management. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the other pursuits you had while you were at USC, uh, any musical outreach you were doing, and then your choice um, to add business administration? Totally. So USC is amazing because they're located in South LA, um, and there's a big need for music education in the surrounding community. So in terms of outreach, I was super involved in outreach. There's a program called Thornton Community Engagement Programs, which is a real gem within the USC Thornton School of Music. Mm -hmm. It provides students at all degree levels an opportunity to teach music to children K through 12 in the community. So my role with music outreach was I was a teacher. I taught choir to elementary school students for four years. Um, and I also did pre-K music, which is my absolute favorite, oh, jazz yeah. fundamentals, like meet the instruments where I would go to different mm -hmm. classrooms and sing or bring an instrumentalist with me. Um, and it was really special because most of the students we served were Title I schools, mm -hmm. primarily students of color, many who had English as a second language. So it was a great experience to, to give back, to learn from the communities we were serving as well, and to engage their families in the music making process as well. So that was super special. And then, yes, as you said, both of us have that administration background. Mm -hmm. I also studied business and I was lucky throughout the summers to, to intern in a variety of industries from investment banking to management consulting, which I do now, um, and was super involved in like business outreach and groups and things like that on campus. Mm -hmm. So yeah, kind of all over the place, but grateful for it all because it's led to led me to, to where I am today. Right. So right now uh, you're using your business administration degree with PwC, working to uh, consult for Fortune 500 companies, but you have this passion for music as well. Do you ever see yourself at any point in your career sort of combining those two interests mm -hmm. and potentially going into the world of arts administration? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes. The answer to that is yes. I would absolutely love to. And I think a great thing about consulting, and I know many of our listeners are from the music world and might not be familiar, but pretty much my day-to-day -day as a strategist at, at PwC is about helping our generally Fortune 500 or 1,000 clients figure out their customer experience or employee experience challenges through digital strategy. So it's a great way to learn more about business, thinking about customer experience, educating myself on trends that impact not just business, but every industry, including the arts. 
And as I look into getting into arts management down the line, I think I'll have a really strong foundation that I can bring to whatever organization I decide to work with. And it definitely helps me in my role as a board member currently for some arts organizations too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we are going to talk at length yeah. about the board. We, <laughs> we are really looking forward to talking about that. But first, we've mentioned it a couple times now, you are a Fulbright Scholar. Uh, tell us a little bit and our audience a little bit more about the Fulbright Scholarship Program and what led to your decision to uh, apply for the Fulbright. Yeah, oh, I'm so glad you asked. I love the Fulbright. I'm currently an alumni ambassador for the Fulbright, so you can look me up on the Fulbright website. Happy to answer any questions. But for those who are new to the Fulbright, it's a government-funded fellowship. It operates in over 170 countries. They provide grants for students at all degree levels, so from bachelor's to PhD, and even professionals and artists, to pursue a research project in a foreign country. And the goal of the program is to create goodwill with the United States um, and all of our foreign partners around the world um, as kind of a cultural ambassadorship opportunity for us to, to teach another country about our culture and to also learn more from them. So it's an absolutely fantastic program. It's a real gift um, that is available to anyone who has graduated from their undergraduate degree um, and is something that I love talking about and sharing more about. Mm -hmm. What you so you studied specifically South Asian music and performance of it, um, and you've we've kind of hinted as to why you chose that. But can you can dive can you dive a little deeper into that decision, and then what was that experience like? Yeah, totally. And so just to backtrack a little bit too, like a lot of people don't realize that Fulbrights like musicians can be awarded Fulbrights. Right. They often think it's like medical research or sociopolitical topics or things like that. But I'm not the first creative and performing arts Fulbrights. There's been a lot of other musical Fulbrights. So just a couple of highlights. Aaron Copeland was a Fulbrighter in Italy, Renee Fleming in Germany, Philip Glass. Um, and there's someone, there's a composer named Rina Ismail as well, who I absolutely love. And she did a Fulbright in mm -hmm. India as well. She's currently the composer in residence for the LA Master Crowd. But learning about all of that was really inspirational for me in deciding to pursue this. Um, and to tell you more about my project, I was based in South India for nine months in a town on the beach called Vishakhapatnam. Um, and I worked with two gurus who I had found previously through my mentor, um, who I'd attend class with every single day at two different institutions, learning classical voice, history, pedagogy, theory, and languages. Um, so my days were super jam-packed and kind of the culmination of what I did um, was presenting two like full-length recitals of South Indian classical music in the local language. It was definitely a lot, but a ton of fun, and also doing some music outreach. I also worked with the U.S. Embassy to set up a choral program for underserved um, high school students um, and taught choir at, for, for those students through the U.S. Embassy outreach program. So it was amazing to also be like embedded into the community while I was there. Yeah. And but when you say you taught choir, did you teach Western singing, the Western I choral did. tradition? <laughs> yeah, I did. So part of the Fulbright is all about cultural exchange. Yeah. So that was kind of my way to, to share my choral music knowledge with students in Vishakhapatnam. Yeah. And I, I think that kind of leads into the question of what is it when what is it like as a Western classical musician going into another country and sharing your music and learning there. What is what is that experience like and that culture exchange? Because that's something that not a lot of people get to experience, I think. 
Yeah, well, it's super fun. I hope both of you get the opportunity to go to India at some point. Um, but India is very unique because there's a history of British colonization there. So as such, there's a lot of Western influence into their music. So for example, like the violin and the viola have been adopted as an Indian instrument. Like you're not going to see a Carnatic music concert that doesn't have a violinist. Mm. And there's a bunch of other instruments that have been adapted as well, like the saxophone and clarinet are some other instruments that are quite common as well as like Carnatic, like mandolin and guitar. Anything like keyboard instruments don't work so well because of the 22 tones and such, but anything that slides or strings or winds like work very well and have been widely adopted. But what's interesting about that though is people still aren't really sure what Western classical music entails. And I was working with my, my teacher who has a PhD um, in Indian music and musicology, but they're still not very familiar with Western classical music. And it's not a bad thing at all. It's because their tradition is so well known and renowned and um, codified that Western music isn't something that they're really thinking about on a day-to-day -day basis. Their own tradition is so rich. But I remember people asking me, like, especially kids being like, oh, I watched Tom and Jerry and I saw Tom playing the piano or like there was orchestral music in the background of such and such cartoon. Mm. So it was interesting. That was like one of their main points of exposure to Western music. So it was fun to connect on that. But another like, a, like piece of advice I would give to Western musicians is like not forcing your Western perspective, like on the music and history that you're learning. So I can give some fun examples. So like my teacher had asked me to write a report on the Vena. So that's a stringed instrument. Um, it's really beautiful. But I spoke to this man who was like a Vena professor, like super well known. And I was asking like, when was the Vena created? Like who are prominent artists? Like what's the history of this instrument? And the, there's a big mix between like mysticism and actual history. And so the answer I got was, oh, this like instrument was given to us by the goddess Saraswati on the banks of this river many, many years ago, no one knows when, like it was brought over by, by the goddess, like to us as a gift. And since then, like we've been playing this instrument and it has evolved a little bit, but like, there's not really like, you know, such and such created this at this time. Like they, because they're like a very humble culture too. I think that they attribute a lot of things to like gods and goddesses or the saints or sages gave these instruments and this music to us rather than, you know, Hildegard von Bingen, like, created this in the year, like, 1350. It's very interesting, and I had to, and I was like, can someone give me a real answer here? But <laughs> I ended up, like, embracing that, like, it's okay, like, if the goddess brought this, brought this instrument to us, or if the seven notes in Indian music came from these statues, like, on a mountain in the Himalayas, like, that's fine. Um, so it was definitely, like, a, a cultural shift to think about history, in theory, like, in such a different way. So long-winded answer, but a few is, examples. That is super interesting. So yeah. the violin, so here, here's another question. Okay, we don't know where it came from, but the violin is not the same now as it was mm. during Bach's time. Oh. Have these instruments pretty much not changed to the best of anyone's knowledge? They're made exactly the same way that they always have been? No, they've definitely changed. <laughs> okay. But, <laughs> So I went to the, like the most, one of the most famous temples in South India, it's called um, Thirumala. It's like at the top of this hill in Thirupati. Um, and it's a very famous temple. And when I was there, they had this like exhibit 
of like ancient musical instruments that had been used for worship in the temple. Mm-hmm. And like I did see some like older binas and seen how that has evolved to today. So like it's definitely there. But unless you're like in really deep like musical circles of musicologists and researchers, most people aren't really aware of things like evolution, timelines, historical narratives, things like that. Mm. It's not something that's valued as much as performance. And that's something that kind of threw me off because we all take music history. Like that's, we all have to take music theory as music students, but that's something that's just, it's not as highly valued um, in India as it is here. Interesting. That is very, very interesting. And really quickly, before we move off this (laughs) to to, uh, open up some other avenues here, would you say as a singer who grew up singing 12 notes perfectly in tune, (laughs) what was the experience like learning to sing 22? Oh my goodness. Okay. So it took a long time because here's the funny thing. Like I listen back to my recordings and it's completely taught orally. So my teacher will sing something and I'll sing it back. And like, she would be singing like a microtone and I wouldn't hear it. Mm. Like it wouldn't, it would like in my head, I would like calibrate it to the next closest pitch. So, and I listen back to the recordings and like, I can hear that I'm not getting it right and my teacher like wouldn't know how to explain it to me she's like you're not getting it right you're not getting it right but like wouldn't be able to explain like what it was exactly like it was just a little bit about the tonality and the vowels and stuff that were off but as I got more comfortable with it like I noticed my ear starting to shift and I was able to pick up on more of those nuances but it was definitely a struggle I can remember banging my head against the wall being like why am I not getting this right like I don't know what I'm doing wrong but it was like a fundamental shift like in the way I listened too, that had to change to be successful and it's definitely still something that I'm working on like feedback I get from Indian classical musicians like when I sing for them they'll be like oh it's like so nice and it's beautiful and in tune but like it's called the gamakas which is like what you call that the not the quaver but like the space in between the notes like the slides that mm-hmm. happen note to note that encompasses microtones that I'm not really getting like I sure like can sing legato but gamaka is like something it's, it's very different from legato. Interesting. Interesting. And you alluded there's no notation, I guess. There is notation, oh. actually, but it's not very detailed. So there's like seven notes. They use solfege-based notation. So it's sarigama padanisa. And they'll write like sariga, which is like do, re, mi. But it's not do, re, mi. It's sariga. Like it's... But you can't write that down. Right. Interesting. Nasty. <laughs> like writing on a piece of paper isn't the same as just like the the embellishments I just used. Absolutely. And so like on my notes, like I would be writing these little curly cues and squiggles and like <laughs> doing my best to notate it. But it's more of a framework, I'd say, for your own interpretation and improvisation. That is so cool. Amazing. Also, you sound beautiful. <laughs> you just pulled that out of nowhere. You're like, and I'm gonna sing now, real quick. Um, I won't ask you to sing. Yeah, I won't ask you to sing too much more because I know it's the morning there, and you <laughs> have been working all day. Oh, so, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's at it's 10:30 a.m. Uh, where she's at right now. Um, well, Gita, I um, we've kind of talked about. You know, you mentioned this at the top of. There's a lot of things that uh, Western listeners of classical music won't realize about Indian classical music, like 
its tradition. It is classical music. It is not folk music. There are patrons. It is performed. Is there anything you didn't mention that you think Western listeners should know about Indian classical music if they want to dive into listening to it or want to do their own research on it? Yeah, I mean, I think they should just recognize also like the virtuosic aspect of Mm. it. So improvisation is like the highest ideal of Carnatic music. Like you get through your basic, like it's almost like the Suzuki method where you learn your scales, the small compositions, then larger compositions. But what you really want to get to is that improvisatory aspect where you're improvising in different ragas, which are melodic modes, um, in different salas or time signatures. Um, and it's something that takes years of study and like a virtuosic kind of mindset to achieve. So definitely like a very unique and interesting area of Indian classical music I would recommend everybody check out. Yeah. So pivoting a little bit at this point, you are on a board. You are a board member for an arts organization. Specifically, you're a board member for Synchrony. Tell us a little bit about Synchrony as an organization and some of the role, your roles and responsibilities as a board member. Totally. Yeah. And actually, since we've chatted, I'm actually on the board of two organizations now. I joined the board of Pacific Youth Choir um, during the pandemic. So that has been great too. But to give a quick overview, so Synchrony um, is a new music collective based in Los Angeles. They're project-based um, and have a number of artistic directors who figure out a lot of interesting program for like programming for them throughout the year. Um, most recently, we've done a digital um, musical experience for Bird LA Day, which is a partnership with the Audubon Society and commissioned um, a bunch of composers to write pieces just for solo instruments or duo instruments, like about different birds in a park. And like, as people go throughout the park, they can click on this digital guide to hear music and are trying to do an in-person performance of that soon as LA County is opening up. So we do a lot of like interesting kind of visual plus musical types of projects um, for our like dedicated listener base. That one's a lot of fun. And then Pacific Youth Choir is a youth choir based up in Portland, Oregon serves hundreds of students, K through 12, um, and is just a a community choir that meets weekly, but is like very well known, performed at national ACDA conventions, has won a lot of awards and just has brilliant artistic leadership. And I used to sing with them when I was in high school as well. So it's great to be able to come back and and give back as a board member. Wow. So as a board member, uh, I think a lot of people don't understand really what boards do. what does a board do? What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So as a board member, some of your main responsibilities, like at least for me around fundraising, so helping through like donating money as I can, inspiring others to doing development, um, doing fundraising, recently helped with an auction for Pacific Youth Choir. So tons of fun things like that. We have to approve financials, um, helping make major decisions, spending decisions or strategic decisions and helping the executive directors and artistic team um, to support the longevity of the organizations and helping them make sustainable choices that serve our patrons and also for the health of the organization Mm -hmm. at a very high level. Yeah, yeah. That's such a great, concise answer to what a board does. (laughs) Absolutely. And I know one of the important, one of the important responsibilities of a board is to help select executive and artistic leadership. I don't know if you've been involved in a search process of any kind, but I know that 
that is a huge responsibility of a board as well. Yep, you're totally right. I haven't been involved in that process yet, but definitely something that's on my radar. And, and currently, like for both of my boards, like as the fiscal year ends, we're looking to <clears throat> add new leaders to our board as well. So something we're working on for sure. Definitely. And speaking of adding new leaders, so one of the, this podcast is all about increasing awareness of diversity, equity, and inclusion issues within the orchestral music field. And you're not in the orchestral field, but you're in the music world. And we've talked a lot about what we can do on stage, what we can do in our programming, but not as much yet so far about the board. And as a person of Indian descent on the board, you are you one of the only or maybe the only person of color on the board? And if in addition to that, what can we do to help increase the diversity of our boards without it being a tokenizing effort? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's a mission that a lot of arts organizations are embarking on. As you said, it's definitely something that should be top of agenda, top of the agenda for most organizations. Um, I'm lucky to actually not be the only person of color on my board. There are other people of color with diverse perspectives, like on the boards I serve as well, <clears throat> but definitely an area that I think both of our organizations can grow. I'd say like, at least in, in my role at PwC as well, like diversity and inclusion is definitely something that we talk about. And so I think like, as you do your searches, like thinking about the gaps that you need to fill and not just, I'm not talking about racial quotas or anything like that, but thinking in terms of like perspectives. And I think like if the people that you select also are diverse, like that's amazing, but like we should pick people who can like serve the needs of the organization. So do we need people who represent the needs of our community? Do we need people who can do digital strategy and marketing? Mm -hmm. um, do we need people who are like top in development and fundraising? And like within those areas, finding people who also bring something incredible and unique to the board. And I think about me, like I am of South Asian descent and I think that's great in bringing a new perspective, especially like, to the choral organization that I'm a part of as we think about programming and things like that. But I'm also like young and I'm on top of social media trends. Like I'm a digital strategist my day to day and I've helped like the digital transformation of our organizations. Mm -hmm. And so I thinking, I think it's like a mix of thinking about functional diversity um, and thinking about like what your organization really needs to be successful right. is definitely like how organizations should be thinking about it. I'm not an expert by any means, but I love to see the movement that's happening towards for diversity. Absolutely. Right. And you bring up another thing in that you are a young person right, yeah. on these boards. And a lot of boards, it's generally people, older people, more established people, and having a young perspective in addition to perspectives of, of different um, races and ethnicities is also important. Right. Yeah. I, I was kind of mm -hmm. curious as to your experience as a young woman on a board and how you, how you got into being on boards. Cause I think that's something that a lot of young people don't really know how to approach or how to even go about doing. Um, but I think it's super important. And the other, um, part that sometimes prohibits young people from being on boards is some boards have a lot of, uh, they, 
there is a um, donation quota to be on the board, which yeah. sometimes young people can't fulfill. So um, wh- what has your experience been like as a young person on a board? And then what do you think about those financial quotas and how are some ways that we could still include young people, even if they can't meet that? Yeah, I'm so happy you asked that. Like, I love being a young person on the board and like, there's a lot of benefits to it as well. Like for Synchrony Music LA, like we're looking for interns. Like I'm able to easily like tap into my USC or college network mm. and help us find people who can support the organization. Um, thinking about social media and stuff, like I've done a social media campaign for Pacific Youth Choir that, you know, and I've been able to connect with our like high school students and stuff in a way that those who are older can't. So definitely think that most arts organizations should think about leaning into that younger demographic and the unique skill sets that they bring. And also your your comment on the give and get is really valid and it's something that can disenfranchise younger people from mm-hmm. joining. But something I've seen not in the arts space, but in general nonprofits, like I know United Way does this, mm-hmm. like Chicago Cares does this. They have like young professional boards where the give and get is a little bit lower or there's not a give and get at all. And it's more of a working board who help run initiatives, like set up fundraising events, like really like in the weeds doing the work that maybe those who are older families, like advisory board types of people can't do. So they fill a really unique need with their skills while the advisory board does something different. And so I think it's also creating those opportunities because I think so many young people want to be involved, but they're not seeing this need from the arts organizations that they love and support yet. So definitely something I hope that changes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real, yeah. I'm really glad you bring that up. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Now, did you actively pursue board membership or were you approached as a, Hey, you're really involved here. Would you consider joining the board? What, how did, what was, what was the initial <laughs> path in for you? Yeah, I was actually approached. So for Synchrony, the executive, I'd worked with the executive director at a previous organization when I was interning for the LA County Arts Commission. So she'd asked me if I'd wanted to be involved, went through the interview process. Um, And for Pacific Youth Choir, it was tapped as well, Um, went through an interview process with the board um, and was selected. So actually, I'm very lucky to have been tapped that way. She's she's popular. (laughs) (laughs) I think like being someone who has studied both like studied both like business administration and choral music and with the work I do with Fulbright like I think I have a unique background that people in my community have been able to see but I really hope that like for other musicians or other business people like those who are not totally ensconced in like both worlds like also have these opportunities Mm -hmm. and definitely like something as a board member I'm trying to do more of as we look to recruit new members for both of my boards. Yeah, absolutely. And and having been someone who was approached in both cases, it's something that we the, the existing boards should keep in mind. You know, people are willing to do this, yeah. but mm-hmm. sometimes all it takes is somebody reaching out yeah. and asking. Yeah. And you mentioned, uh, you know, just a couple more questions here before we have to wrap up. But um, you mentioned your business background and your music background and how that has really benefited you. Can you speak on that a little bit and how you think um, it's uh, affecting your work as a board member and why that's so valuable for other nonprofits to be thinking about? Yeah, it's a great question. And I know like you've also had this experience, Rachel, so it's awesome to talk to you about it. (laughs) But I think like the ability to read financial statements, like Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know my balance, I was a TA in accounting actually back in the day. Wow. (laughs) Being able to like understand a balance sheet, profit and loss statements and stuff like that is super important and definitely is 
a key part of being a board member. Um, I think understanding like general principles of marketing, like outside in, like understanding like how to collect feedback from your audiences or your customers, as you'd say in business, like the ability, like that kind of design thinking is super important and innovation strategy, another area that classical music organizations are working to develop, as well as just like empathetic communication um, like and teaming skills that you learn like in your business fundamentals classes and in your internships. I think all of those things have really benefited me. And I think you don't have to be a business major either to develop those skills. I think a little bit of online research, like getting a little bit of coaching from a friend. Like I think anybody who's interested in, in joining a board could build these skills if they're really passionate and committed to learning more. Mm-hmm. For sure. Absolutely. And so much of what you just mentioned, you know, it's crucial to the day-to-day mm-hmm. functioning of our organizations. But People like me who know how to make good music, but would look at a balance sheet and it would look like another language to me. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. we need, we so badly need people <laughs> like you who both understand what we do, where we come from, as well as mm-hmm. the other important nuts and bolts that go into keeping us financially afloat. Yeah. Anyway, uh, tell us a little bit. Do you think your age and gender has affected how you do what you do and how you approach what you do. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think like our, everyone's identities like affect how they view the world. And it's not, at least for me, it's not even just age or gender. It's also like my ethnicity, the experience I have, like as a business professional, like where I live, like there's so many aspects to everyone's identity that like affect the work that they do. I think age and gender is definitely a salient one on the boards that I serve on. But I think it definitely helps me like push my organizations in ways that are like built on my unique experience, whether that's helping identify like diverse board members or selecting programming um, that I feel is inclusive or picking outreach that I think is really driven on community needs. It's not based on just like what the organization wants to do, but is based on like a design thinking perspective. So those are just a few areas that come to mind. Um, but yeah, like I think, yeah, as you said, age and gender are important, but also I think like everything that a board member brings to the table is, is something that should be considered as we think about like recruiting new members for organizations. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And kind of finishing up here today, you're not in the world of orchestral music necessarily, but I, I know you definitely understand it. Um, and, you know, this podcast is called Orchestrating Change. So when you're thinking about the world of orchestra, the world of nonprofits, the world of arts, what do you see as the way to orchestrate change? And what do you think is maybe the most urgent thing on that list? Mm-hmm. That, yeah. So this is a, a multi-layered question mm-hmm. and I think COVID has definitely thrown a wrench. Like I know PwC has done a lot of research around like workforce of the future and like post-COVID trends and things like that. And so kind of based on that, like a few things that come to mind, especially in terms of orchestrating change is number one, embracing digital. I think we shouldn't just use like digital orchestra or like our social media presence as the contingency plan during COVID. I know we've taken all of our programming, most orchestras have taken it digital, but I think like we should think beyond that and think about how we can create like engaging programming that inspires donor engagement Mm -hmm. and also reaches new audiences. Like now we have this way to reach people who might not be able to like come to a concert hall or don't have the resources to like, or don't have the ability to sit through a two hour performance. Like this is a really unique venue for us to capture feedback, test new content 
and to also practice equity and inclusion in a new way that's accessible to a lot of people. So like that's one. And the second thing I would say is I'm very passionate about music education and outreach and COVID has really taken a toll like on America's youth and our students and, and students who are especially learning music. I think making sure our programming is like music education program is, is sustainable and equitable going forward is important too. I think it's less about going to a classroom once a month and playing playing music and thinking more about families and the surrounding community. And so I love organizations like Sphinx and the Heart of LA that kind of do wraparound services with their music education as well. So it's not just like one-off you teaching music, it's here's an instrument you can take home. Here's how we're engaging your family. Like here's after school tutoring. And I know it's very resource intensive, but I think like when we think about music education, we have to think about longevity and not just the life of the student, but their family as well. And so it's just something I'm, I'm passionate about. Yeah, those Absolutely. are some really amazing points. Indeed. So just a, a couple of final things here. Uh, you are not in the orchestral world, but you probably, as a singer, as a choral singer, you probably have some orchestral collaboration experience. Mm -hmm. And maybe uh, you are potentially a patron of, of orchestras or have been. What? How do you see the orchestral world today and going forward? What do you see for the future of our industry? Yeah. So you're right. I'm not in the orchestral world, but definitely am like quite engaged with my local orchestras and at least in Oregon, like grew up singing Beethoven 9 <laughs> with the Oregon Symphony every year for New Year's. So I've done lots of that. Um, but probably the most important thing that comes to mind is like, as we like think of a post-COVID world, like thinking about how we can make our our musicians like modular and scalable. I think more and more music is going to happen outside of the concert halls with people like shifting to remote work models. Like I think our metropolitan concert halls and programming might not be as relevant as it once was. So thinking about how we can bring orchestral music to people wherever they are, whether that's in the suburbs, whether that's in nursing homes. So I think we'll really have to be very creative with how we get music, our delivery methods mm -hmm. um, as we look like post pandemic. Yeah, and I, you know, that pulls in your idea, you know, digital content and making sure that yeah. we're using that effectively. And I think that's a really, a really interesting point. Uh, well, before we head out, any last thoughts you want to give us before we head out today? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, this was a lovely opportunity. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Mm -hmm. um, for those who are more interested, so I got a couple of recommendations here. Great. If you're more yes. interested in learning about Fulbright, check out the Fulbright website. There's many awards for creative and performing arts that would highly recommend. Um, other things, if you're interested in learning more about Indian music, most communities have some kind of classical Indian music organization. A couple of big ones to look into is the Ali Akbar School of Music for Hindustani Music um, in the Bay Area. There's the South, South Indian Musical Academy um, in SoCal. So I'd say do a couple of online searches and see if you can get con connected with, a, with your local Indian music organization. Um, yeah. Those, I guess those are the big, big things I would say as follow-ups from some of the, the key points I made. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. The Canton Symphony Orchestra is an inspiration. I love the work that you do, and it's a real honor to be included. Thank you. It has been an absolute pleasure including you. Thank you so much again <laughs> for joining us. Thank you.
Gita Somayajala, Fulbright scholar who studied Indian classical music, strategist at PWC, and board member at Synchrome and the Pacific Youth Choir. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer is Nathan Maslick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.